all set back there, Nick? All right. You can turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. Uh, looking again at verse 5 this morning, kind of concentrating on that when we covered verses 3 through 5 last time, and then uh, verse 5 is definitely worthy of a little bit more study. There's a lot going on there in that verse, whether we, uh, whether we know it or not. <laughs> and so we'll take a little bit of a detour this morning uh, after we rev- do some review and look at uh, some of the issues in the verse, and then we'll kind of do this little bit of a, of a detour to see if, if believers can actually be excluded from the kingdom. And, and of course, in order to do that, answer that question, we have to know what the kingdom actually is. And this is, this is really an important question to know the answer to. Uh, the title of our message is, Who is Excluded from the Kingdom? That, that is a very critical thing for us to understand for a number of reasons. Uh, as a believer in Christ, the Bible teaches that we should have an assurance of our salvation. That's very different than uh, the idea, or it, it can be very different than the idea of once saved, always saved, which I believe is true, but that can be uh, manipulated in a way to give a person absolutely no assurance of their salvation. If we believe, for example, that uh, God selected who would be saved in eternity past, and all of those people who God chose will one day come to faith, uh, and those people that God predetermined would be saved personally, individually, always will have salvation. That gets kind of complicated because we, uh, at different times in our lives, will commit sins such as the ones listed in verses 3 and 4. And so then we're left with this question, well, if I do those sins, am I actually saved? Am I one of those ones that God in eternity past predetermined would be saved? Uh, And you can be left with a lot of doubt, even though you uh, can claim that you believe in the doctrine of once saved, always saved. Well, the Bible teaches us that we can have the assurance of our salvation that if somebody asked us today, are you sure you're going to heaven? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ according to the Bible, according to the, to the gospel, you can answer that person with 100% assurity. Yes, I am going to heaven when I die. I will be in God's kingdom on this earth because I have believed in Jesus Christ. That's the only, the only condition. So this so being able to answer this question and understand Ephesians 5.5 5 and a number of other passages that we'll look at this morning uh, and know who is going to be excluded from the kingdom is, is very important. It, it, uh, it helps us in our understanding of the gospel to make sure we have the right gospel and we understand the gospel, the good news as it's given in the scriptures and it will also help us in this 
theology that you may come across known as outer darkness, that, that believers can be absent from their body and present with the Lord. For example, if you died today and you're a believer in Christ under this doctrine of outer darkness, you could leave your body today, your spirit can leave your body, go to heaven, be in God's heaven with the Lord, with God the Father, all the saved of all eternity since creation. And then, one day, when Christ comes again to the earth and establishes his kingdom and the saints go with him, according to the doctrine of outer darkness, if you were an unfaithful Christian during your time on the earth, like you committed these sins listed here in verses 3 and 4, you will be excluded from the darkness or from the kingdom. You will be cast into outer darkness. You will essentially suffer for a thousand years. And then at the end of the thousand years, you'll be back good with God. That's a, that's a very dangerous doctrine as well. So it, it's very incumbent upon us to understand what it means in verse 5, what, what Paul means, what the Lord means when he uh, has Paul write down for us, verse 5, Ephesians 5, For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. It's very important for us to understand what that means. So we'll spend uh, most of our time this morning looking into that question. Here's where we are in Ephesians, in this letter of Paul to the Ephesians there in chapter 5, in the application section of the letter. This is where all the commands are. There weren't any commands in the first three chapters when Paul is explaining what salvation is, that God has planned, had, had a plan from before the foundation of the world for people to be saved by believing in Jesus Christ, by trusting in Jesus Christ and his payment for our sins, his payment on our behalf for our sins. Believing in that gives you eternal life. Now, chapters 4, 5, and 6, we should live our lives in a certain way. We should walk worthy of the things that have been done for us. And one of the, one of the metaphors, if you will, that Paul uses here, figures of speech, he refers to the Christian life as a walk, and he gives many different uh, examples of what that should look like we should walk in love verses one through six we should walk as children of light verses seven through 14 and we should walk carefully verses 15 through 21 that's just sort of where we are where we are headed but to set the stage for what we will talk about today ephesians 5 3 says but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Of course, this follows right on the heels of verses 1 and 2, where Paul tells the Ephesians, they and all believers are to be imitators of God. We are to walk in love the same way that Christ loved us. We should love one another and walk that same way. But 
Verse 3, immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, and there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. In this in these verses, we have what uh, theologians refer to as a vice list here. This immorality, impurity, greed, filthiness, silly talk, coarse jesting. All of these uh, things are vices that Christians aren't supposed to be doing, essentially. And there's, there are several other passages that are similar to this and include some of the same sins and some additional sins we will see in 1 Corinthians 6 and Galatians 5, uh, for example. And we looked at these last time. Immorality, uh, it, it is used in the scriptures to refer to uh, sexual relations between people who aren't married, illegal marriages. Uh, incest would sometimes fit into this category. Prostitution. Uh, fornication, all of these kinds of sexual sins fit into uh, this category of immorality. And of course, uh, in our day and age, we think of well, gay marriage. Well, the Bible doesn't ever condemn gay marriage. Well, yeah, it actually it does. <laughs> right here in Ephesians 5.5 5 with that term porneia, no immorality, that would certainly fit under that category of immorality as it is not uh, a biblical marriage. It's not marriage the way that God designed it and Jesus Christ affirmed in the New Testament marriages between one man and one woman for life. Uh, That term can also, we saw last time, uh, refer to transcendent immorality, things that are just so obviously immoral that, that we should not uh, be partaking in them as believers in Christ. Uh, this term for Im- impurity, it's a, a similar term, a related term, speaking of a lot of the same kinds of sins, things that cause ceremonial uncleanness for uh, Jewish people. They would have used that, that term. Remember, Paul is talking here to, to uh, literal idolaters, people who used to be idolaters. Ephesus was a very pagan city. All of Greece was very pagan. I mean, that was their religion. When when they went to church on Sunday, quote-unquote church on Sunday, it was pagan worship. And I I don't know if they went on Sunday or not. But (laughs) they, and part of their worship was partaking in these activities. And Paul is here saying, of course, you, you need to be separate from that. You can, no, you can no longer participate in those activities as a part of your religion or even as a part of your daily life as a believer in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to the, the sins of the tongue we saw last time. We're, we're really uh, talking about these kinds of activities, making jokes about these kinds of activities uh, and those kinds of Things, things that just really aren't fitting for Christians. Instead, we should be giving thanks. 
instead of talking like that, we should be giving thanks. I made reference to 1 Thessalonians 5 last time and didn't get all the way through that, all the way through the passage. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Paul talking kind of about the same things. What should we be thinking? What should we be saying? He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Notice this, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Pagan worship was very much involved in immorality and impurity. Uh, so abstain from every form of evil. Obviously, pagan worship is, is very evil in its in its just its very nature and its purpose. It's, it's worshiping uh, not the God of the universe, but the God of the world. That's why they worship, when they're doing these kinds of pagan worship things, quite often there are representations of animals and trees and things of creation because they're worshiping the creature rather than the creator and there is one creature who definitely wants people to do that, who, according to the Bible, he goes by the name of Satan. He is the evil one who is leading people into this kind of false worship. So we need to be obviously abstaining from those kinds of activities. Rather than talking about these sins, participating in these sins, we need to be rejoicing, we need to be praying, we need to be giving thanks. Notice we need to be studying the word. Don't despise prophetic utterances, but instead examine everything carefully and abstain from evil. That's, that's kind of the Christian life wrapped into, well, it's like five verses in 1 Thessalonians, but it's uh, very few words. You can, uh, that's the Christian life. Rejoice, pray, give thanks, study the word, abstain from evil. That's basically... Uh, what it comes down to. So that's that's where we were uh, last time. Today, we'll look quickly at the command, and then we'll see the claim and the conclusion. We uh, this initially will be a little bit of review of what we already saw last time. In verse 5, it says, For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom. Uh, last time we saw that this, is, that this uh, idea here, for this you know with certainty, is actually a command. There are two related words that appear in the sentence that both are translated as no, uh, that we don't see in our English Bibles, but that the NASB chooses to translate it as, for this you know with certainty. It, sometimes a word-for-word -word translation can kind of get in the way of our understanding. Uh, literally, it would be, you were commanded to know, and you are knowing this. And he uses two different words for know, purposefully. The first one, the command, is this word for knowing something academically. Like you are sitting here and listening to me talk, and I'm giving you some academic information like 
The first word for know in this sentence in Greek is oida. And it's a present active imperative. It, it is a present tense active voice command. That's kind of, that's academic knowledge for you there. Paul did that for these people. He gave them academic knowledge about who is going to be in the kingdom and who is not going to be in the kingdom. Academically, they know that immoral people, impure people, people who are greedy, covetous, aren't going to be in the kingdom. They don't have an inheritance in the kingdom. And he also says that they were knowing this, present active participle. In other words, a participle is a, a noun that kind of has qualities of a verb. They, they, are, they fit within the group of people who know this, not just academically. They're, they are intimately familiar with this. They learned the lesson by experience. They, they had a deep personal understanding of what was taught to them. That's the Greek term gnosko. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, it talks a lot about uh, and Abraham knew his wife intimately, familiar with his wife as we, you know, the part of the, the act of consummating a marriage and these kinds of things. He knows his wife. That's this term gnosko. Intimately familiar with uh, one another. This is the way that the Ephesians were with this idea of who is and who is not going to be in the kingdom. And we saw uh, last time that this included all immoral, all unclean, all greedy idolaters. Those are the ones who are going to be excluded from the kingdom. Again, he's talking to these former pagans, uh, all of this, all of these activities would have been part of their pagan worship. And they know this. They were taught these things. It was uh, essentially, they were taught in such a way that Paul refers to it as being a command. They were commanded to know these things. And they certainly did. So you're thinking, man, we're all ready to point two. All right, we're going to get out of here early. There's a, there's a lot of information, and in, especially that conclusion. So <laughs> hang with me. <laughs> the claim, so we've had the, the claim or the command. They were commanded to know these things, and they did. And the claim is that none of these people have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And we looked at this idea of... The inheritance, kleronomia is the Greek term here. And when we look at it, we have to understand that, a, that, this, that an inheritance typically, not always, a lot of times it is just used to refer to a possession, something that somebody has. In most cases, it is something this term is used to describe something that is being given from one person in the Old Testament, most of the time it's God, is giving something to another person. And many, many times it is a future possession. It is something that is guaranteed 
from God to a person, to a group of people, keeping in mind that when God makes a promise, he is, he is a person. He is a person who cannot lie. It is contrary to his nature. Titus 1-2, Hebrews 6-18 makes it very clear, obviously, that God can't lie. So when he promises to give something to someone in the future, this is what we would call a guarantee. It is possible to receive an inheritance before death. We see that in the prodigal son, uh, Luke chapter 15, uh, makes reference to an individual receiving a portion of his inheritance early. However, that's not, that's not the normal procedure that, that is used in this term. Typically, it is something that's going to be received in the future. Now, many times, in fact, most of the times in the Old Testament when this term is used, inheritance is used, it is referring to the land of Israel. And in many commentators say, a lot of people will say, well, see, here it is. I mean, Israel went into the land they received their inheritance. And so, uh, also, it will be equated with a reward. So, the nation of Israel, they received their reward, which was their inheritance. So, inheritance equals reward, which means if you're not a faithful Christian, then you're not going to get the reward, and you're going to be cast into outer darkness. There's a whole chain of beliefs that go together to make this idea of believers being outcast from the kingdom that all have to come together correctly and all have to uh, these assumptions all have to be true and the very first assumption isn't true in this in this case the nation of israel will receive the land period as we're going to see it is a promise from god to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they will have the land. They will have the inheritance. And that's going to happen in the kingdom, period. And a part of this, part of the problem comes in with a misunderstanding of what the law was for the nation of Israel that we will, that we will get to here shortly. Like we saw last time, the nation of Israel has never received all of the land. That's because they haven't believed in the one who died so that they could have the land. That's Jesus Christ, of course. They haven't trusted in him yet. Like we, uh, we saw last time, we'll see again here shortly, this idea of entering into the kingdom has to do with trust, with believing but when we see this term inheritance of course like um, many if not most of our terms that we have in the new testament they're talked about in the old testament and that's where we get our definitions for an understanding of these terms like kingdom like messiah uh, all of these terms are defined for us in the Old Testament, so that when we come to the New Testament, we don't redefine the terms. We already know what they mean. We're just getting more information 
about them. But it's based on this term inheritance, overwhelming majority of the time that it's used in the Old Testament. It's this Hebrew term nahal or nahala. And it, it is a promise of something that will be delivered in the future. Here are just a, a few examples. Genesis 12, 7 says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. That's a, a reference to the land of Israel. To your descendants, Abram, I will at some point in the future give this land to them. That is, that's a classic definition of the use or, or definition of the term inheritance. I'm going to give this to you in the future. It was a promise from, who did it say that was from? The Lord appeared to Abram and said, that's Yahweh said that to Abram. Joshua 1.6, it says, uh, the Lord speaking to Joshua, be strong and courageous for you shall give this people possession, nahal, inheritance, of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. You shall give this people possession. Future, future tense, again, use of that term. Uh, Proverbs 13.22 is um, more of the standard idea of an inheritance. Uh, a, a wise person leaves an inheritance for his children. Zechariah 8.12, another, uh, another speaking of the future use of this term, Nahal. It says, for there will be peace for the seed. The vine will yield its fruit and the land will yield its produce and the heavens will give their due. This is speaking of the kingdom period when Israel has, it has all of the land. Notice this, it says, and I, and I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit, nahal, all these things. A future possession for the nation of Israel. And so in Ephesians 5.5, 5, uh, we have that. This idea that these people uh, do not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now this morning uh, in Sunday school, we got, for some reason the Lord wants you to hear this twice. I don't know why that is, but uh, we heard a lot about how the church is the kingdom. And we're building the kingdom here on the earth. We're building God's kingdom here on the earth. And when we use that kind of a language, and you'll hear it incessantly in modern Christendom today, if you listen outside of our teaching, and uh, some, there are many others who don't, but when you start straying away from uh, dispensational kinds of teachers, and unfortunately even some who uh, use that title as a dispensationalist, you're going to hear about Christians, the church, doing kingdom work and being kingdom people and be building the kingdom and these kinds of things. That language is, in fact, the exact antithesis of what the Bible teaches concerning Jesus Christ's kingdom on the earth, what we have here described as the kingdom of Christ and God. 
The Bible defines terms for us. We don't get the right to make the terms mean whatever we want. Well, it sounds really good that we're here being kingdom workers and building the kingdom. I mean, who doesn't want to do that? Who doesn't want to make the world a better place? Of course, we want the world to be a better place. We want people to have a better experience in life. Obviously, we want that. Jesus Christ came. The first time he came to the earth, he came so that people would have life and it would be terrible and miserable. Of course not. He came that we may have life and have it more abundantly. So as Christians, it should be our goal, exactly the same as Jesus' goal, that people would have life and have it more abundantly. Now, does our life, is it wrapped up in the clothes that we wear? Is it wrapped up in the cars we drive or the house we live in or the food that we eat or how much we have in our 401k or our savings or gold that we have stashed under the bed? No, that's not the abundant life. Obviously, that's not having life abundantly. The abundant life is hearing the gospel receiving the gospel, believing the gospel, having your sins forgiven, having the assurance of salvation, and walking worthy of the things that have been done for you in spite of your circumstances, in spite of what's in your 401k, in spite of who the president is, in spite of uh, who the governor is and what he or she is telling you to do. You can live for the Lord in spite of all of those things. That's having the abundant life. So of course we want people to have that. But we're not creating the kingdom here on earth. In fact, the Bible tells us that the earth is going to get much, much worse than it is today. Believe it or not. (laughs) It's going to get very scary to be a human being on this earth as time moves on. If you have your eyes focused on the things of the earth, if you have your eyes focused on Christ and you're looking for him to return, you see things, you can like out of the corner of your eye, you can see things getting worse and worse here on the earth as you're looking to Christ, waiting for him to come again. And you can kind of get excited. The worse it gets here, the closer we are to Christ coming again for us to deliver us from the wrath that is to come. So our, our eyes should not be focused on the earth and establishing God's kingdom on earth because uh, according to the scriptures, Jesus has that under control. He, he's going to be the one who establishes his kingdom on the earth. We aren't going to do that. In fact, if we are endeavoring to build a kingdom here on the earth, we're actually preparing the earth for the Antichrist to come. Uh, establishing his kingdom rather than the Christ's kingdom. So this idea of inheritance, it's very intimately tied with the kingdom. In fact, that's what the Israelites are going to inherit is the kingdom. In fact, you as a believer in Jesus Christ are inheriting this same kingdom That is God's plan for the world. It's very important for us to 
to understand God's kingdom program on the earth, what God is doing in the world at this point in time at, throughout history, because if we don't, then we're just left floundering. We don't have any idea what God's doing. We're going to get very discouraged when we see the world headed in the wrong direction. We see our country headed in the wrong direction. You are just opening yourself up for discouragement if you don't realize that God has a plan and purpose for this world. And it's very much wrapped up in this idea of a kingdom. Now, why in the world would God do that? Why Why does he have a kingdom program in the first place? Well, we have this slide that I have for later on, uh, but we know that God has always existed. That's this eternity past. We learned about some of the things that God was doing in eternity past there in Ephesians chapter 1. But one, one day in eternity past, he decided, I don't think it was very long ago on relative terms, he decided to create the world, and he did that in six literal 24-hour days. He created everything that we see and everything that we don't see in those six 24-hour days. And scientists will say, that's impossible. It took millions and millions of years. And my response to that would be, well, he, he let it take six days. He could have just snapped his fingers and said the word and poof, everything could have been here. But he did it in six days. And that was for a very uh, important reason that we don't have time to get into today but at any rate he created the world he created man he created the man and the woman adam and eve to rule and to reign over his perfect creation so here's the first manifestation of the kingdom right back here in this very first dispensation if you will that of innocence when he created adam and eve to rule over all of the fishes the birds the land animals the entire creation we call this innocence because they hadn't sinned yet but they were doing it at that point in time they were ruling and reigning over God's creation we get an indication of that by the fact that Adam named all the animals when people or God names someone that's an indication that he is ruling over them so God gave Adam the right to name all the animals, indicating he is, he's fulfilling his mission, uh, the fancy theological term, theocratic administrator. Adam was ruling on God's behalf over the earth. And then Genesis chapter 3 happens. Adam sins. That causes a problem. God is righteous. God created a perfect world. It was not only good, it was very good. Adam was allowed to rule and reign over it, but then he sinned. Suddenly it's not very good anymore because sin has entered the picture. God has God had a plan for that. He's not wasn't twiddling his or wasn't wringing his hands. Uh-oh. Adam sinned. I hadn't thought of that. What am I going to do now? God had a plan from the beginning, from before he created the world for what he was going to do. And it was very much involved, this kingdom program. He wants someone to rule and to reign over his creation. He, The first Adam, he put there to do it. 
He sinned. He failed. We're in a sin-cursed world. God has a program through which he is going to bring a perfect person into this world who will one day rule and reign over his kingdom on this earth. And that is uh, what God is doing in this world. And he created a nation, a person. If a person's going to come into this world, he's going to have to come from a nation. That is the chosen nation of Israel. So God started that nation with one person. He made a series of promises to Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant uh, is where God begins in this idea of creating a kingdom upon the earth that is going to be a righteous kingdom. He makes the initial promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, telling him that he's going to make him a nation. Genesis 12, 1 through 7. I'm not going to read all of the references uh, this time. Genesis 12 goes here with the Abrahamic covenant. I'm going to make you a people. I'm going to make you a nation. A nation has to have a land. It has to have a ruler, land covenant for the land, a Davidic covenant for the ruler, and it has to have people in it. And Remember that God's kingdom on earth is a righteous kingdom. Righteousness is going to come to the people through the new, this new covenant. So God makes one promise to Abraham. It's essentially broken into three promises, land, ruler, and seed, uh, blessing, if you will, in the new covenant. And these are unconditional promises. That sounds a lot like an inheritance. You don't earn an inheritance, typically, Uh, at least biblically speaking. You don't earn the inheritance it, it is, it's yours by right because it's promised by God to you. These are all unconditional. Abraham didn't have to do anything but believe in God to receive uh, this promise that God gave to him, Abrahamic covenant. God unconditionally promises the land to the nation of Israel. You can read about that unconditional promise, Deuteronomy chapter 30 unconditionally he has given the land to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Davidic covenant, the promise of a ruler one day. 2 Samuel chapter 7. That is an unconditional promise to David. David didn't have to, now you have to go out and keep the Ten Commandments for ten days in a row and then I'll give you a descendant. No. (laughs) Unconditional promise promise that the ruler of this nation will come from the line of David. The new covenant, that one's probably worth uh, reading. Jeremiah chapter uh, 31, verses 31 through, I think I have 36 there, 37. We read actually read a little bit of this this morning too in Sunday school. Jeremiah 31 and verse 31, much later in Israel's history, of course, this is during their Babylonian captivity that Jeremiah 
writes these words, but nevertheless, it is a promise to the nation of Israel that one day God is going to forgive their sins. Notice this. That's very key for this whole kingdom program. It's a righteous kingdom, remember? Back there in the beginning, the reason why we're doing all this is because of sin in the first place. Well, God here promises to forgive the sins of the people of Israel unconditionally. Notice this, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. He's referring to the Mosaic covenant there. Although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No conditions there. I will do this. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. There, if you want a condition, there's your condition. They have to know the Lord. They have to know who the Lord is. Trust him. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the seas so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. That's, some pretty, uh, that's a pretty brazen statement there from God. He is going to accomplish this. He, if you can destroy the sun, moon, and stars, uh, then I won't. Bless my the descendants of Israel. Just very clear language there. You have to do some absolute uh, hermeneutical gymnastics to make that mean anything other than a promise to the nation of Israel. The Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have this promise given to them that if they know the Lord they will have their sins forgiven. And that's the key to the kingdom. They have to have a land which God unconditionally promised to them. They have to have a ruler which God unconditionally promised to them who is Jesus Christ. That's what uh, the Gospels are all about, showing that Jesus is the Christ. He is the fulfillment of this Davidic covenant and in fact jesus even said that his shed blood is the blood for this new covenant so that the nation of israel can have their sins forgiven and therefore can have this kingdom if only
only they will know him, if only they will believe in him, they can have this kingdom. So uh, it's kind of funny. No, I have right here in my notes. So no matter what R.C. Sproul says, uh, Mike referenced a quote from R.C. Sproul talking about, in Sunday school, talking about how the church is Israel and we've replaced them, essentially. No matter what he says, or the Bible answer man says, or any other uh, Reformed theologian says, God has promised to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the nation we call Israel, this kingdom. And he has done it unconditionally, actually. And uh, as we've seen in our study of Ephesians, God also had, had a plan for the Gentile people, not just the Jewish people, but he has a plan for the Gentile people. He has a plan for the entire world that we can all have access to this kingdom through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the promises that God made to the nation of Israel. So we are, uh, as Arnold Fruchtenbaum says it, as members of the church, we are partakers in this promise of a kingdom. We get to partake with the Jewish people. We don't overtake it. We don't become Israel uh, through the cross. We get to partake with the nation of Israel, who also one day will trust in Christ as their Messiah. So you may be thinking, now wait a second, what about the law? God promised if the nation of Israel keeps the law, then, then they will get the land. Well, that, that's partially true. God promised uh, that covenant, the, the other covenant, the old covenant that we saw there in Jeremiah 31. If they, stay, if they obey the law, then they can stay in the land. The Mosaic covenant was very conditional. It was absolutely conditional. These are all unconditional promises. So part of God's plan is making sure that Israel and the whole world understands that God is holy, God is particular, God forgives sins, God has a, a particular way of forgiving sins. All of those things are, are exampled, if you will, in the law. And if Israel will keep those laws, then they can stay in the land. If they disobey which God already knew that they would. You can read about that again in the same chapter where he promises to give them the land. He tells them, but the Deuteronomy is before they've even gone into the land. He tells them, you're going to break the law. But I'm faithful. I've promised to do this. One day your nation will be restored to, to the land. So this, the Mosaic law was a means of testing for the nation of Israel. If they obey, they stay. If they disobey, they're dispersed. It wasn't a means of attaining salvation. It's not a means of, of attaining the kingdom. It's not a way for us to be saved today. It's not a way for us to be in the kingdom uh, or anything like that. It was simply a means of testing. One of the purposes of the law was a means of testing for the nation of Israel. Now, like we saw in 
Jeremiah 31, a future generation will keep the law. And why will they be able to keep the law? Because they, they really gritted their teeth and pulled themselves up by the bootstraps and hung on really tight, and they'll be able to keep the law. No, of course. They have the law written on their heart. They have the Holy Spirit within them when they believe in him. The same way, uh, in, in even a, a more... A greater way than what we do today. One generation in the future of Israelites will trust in Christ and he will write the law on their hearts and, and, that, and that is after they have believed and I believe that is shortly, like immediately before Christ comes again and literally saves them during the tribulation uh, period and so they will enjoy this new covenant the same way that we do by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ and so this is what the kingdom is it's based on these covenant promises to the nation of Israel made possible by the shed blood of Jesus Christ because it is a righteous kingdom it the kingdom is not some nebulous thing that's hard to figure out uh it's not uh you know oh it's not the church it's not us helping other people or anything along those lines it is in fact god's covenanted promises of a kingdom upon the earth it's going to be ruled from jerusalem uh, by jesus christ himself and if you notice that i have uh, one one verse there, Revelation 5, 9 through 10 down here, we are going to, as believers in Christ, as part of the church, one of the benefits of being a believer in Christ is that you get to rule and reign with Christ upon the earth. And so the, the Israelites receive their inheritance the same way that we do, by grace, through faith. God graciously offers it to them, they receive it by way of faith in him. Uh, Ezekiel 39.22 says that of the house of Israel that they will know that I am the Lord their God from that day onward. Ezekiel 38 and 39 describing a, a battle in the future when God saves them. They will know from that day onward that Jesus is the Lord their God. Matthew 23, 39. We saw that in Sunday school this morning also, that, that Jesus promised the Israelites that they will not see him again until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When they recognize Christ as their uh, Savior, as their Messiah, their Christ, then they will have the kingdom. Then they will be saved. Zephaniah 3 9 says, For then I will give to the to the peoples, speaking of Israel, purified lips, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. Verse 15, the Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. That, that, that is a specific promise to the nation of Israel 
in the future when they believe the Lord will be in their midst. Zechariah 12.10 speaks of the nation of Israel looking on the one that they have pierced and they will mourn, they will believe in him, and he's going to come again to them when they do that. Then they will have entrance into their inheritance. That they all kind of all these terms are are synonymous. And they all come by grace through faith, not through keeping the law, not through being good little boys and girls. It is because God has promised it to them and they trust in his promises to them and then he grants them entrance into the kingdom and we saw last time that that uh, the kingdom is very much equated with eternal life uh, in the old testament and that's because god's kingdom is an eternal kingdom this thousand year period on the earth is just the the front porch it's just literally the entrance into an eternal kingdom it's just the first step into this eternal kingdom and jewish people gentile people all people receive entrance into that kingdom on the basis of faith jesus we talked about this conversation that he had with nicodemus the last time john 3 3 uh, nicodemus comes to christ at nighttime asking him about this kingdom how am i going how can people get into the kingdom essentially and jesus is kind of flabbergasted what what you are the teacher of israel you don't know how people have eternal life how they gain entrance into the kingdom so he says jesus says to him truly truly i say to you unless one is born again he cannot see the kingdom of god he cannot enter into the kingdom of god and again, truly, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, born naturally, and the Spirit, uh, born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. He cannot enter into his inheritance. And then in verse 16, Jesus makes the connection between seeing the kingdom of God, entering into the kingdom of God, and eternal life with the verse we're all familiar with. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life granted to people on the basis of believing in Jesus Christ. Entrance into the kingdom. If kingdom and eternal life mean the same thing, then they're conditioned on the same thing and that is believing in christ so when we come to verse 5 in ephesians 5 all of that to get to this isn't it great for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of christ and god or you could reword it and it would mean exactly the same thing has entrance into the kingdom of God, a kingdom of Christ and God. Or you could say that immoral, impure, covetous 
people who are idolaters do not have eternal life. All of those mean exactly, precisely the same thing. So the conclusion is, who is excluded from the kingdom? It's people who are known by their works, who are known as immoral, impure, covetous, engage in this uh, filthy talk, silly talk, coarse jesting. It's easy to, to talk about verse 3 and say, oh, well, of course, immoral people aren't going to be there. You know, the, uh, you know, insert your favorites in there. Of course, they're not going to be there. What about people who, uh, coarse jesting, filthiness, silly talk, things that aren't fitting, just the words that you talk about can uh, exclude you from the kingdom of Christ and God or eternal life. Ooh, that gets a little uh, closer to the heart there. But the fact of the matter is that unbelievers, if believers have eternal life, entrance into the kingdom, and inheritance, then that means that unbelievers do not have the inheritance, do not have eternal life, do not enter into the kingdom. And why would that be? Because they, unbelievers are known by their works. They are not known as having the righteousness of Christ given to them as you are. As a believer in Christ, God sees you with Jesus' righteousness credited to you. That's Genesis 15.6. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. doesn't say Abraham uh, believed God and kept a whole litany of things and never once was immoral. Oh, wait a second. He never once lied. He never once... Well, the entire story of Abraham's life is one of disobedience, showing him breaking all of the commandments that hadn't even been given yet. Oh, by the way. But nevertheless... This story of Abraham's life is, is a battle, uh, like a civil war going on within Abraham. Huh, that sounds a lot like Romans chapter 7. Exactly the same thing. Paul talks about a civil war, essentially, that's going on inside of himself between his sin nature and this perfect nature that God gives to us when we believe in him. People who've never trusted in Christ don't have that new nature. They don't have the Holy Spirit within them. God sees them as they are, as sinners. So that's why in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, it talks about these people being excluded from the kingdom because they're known by their works. Same thing in Galatians chapter 5. They're not condemned because of the sin. That's kind of different. They're not condemned because they committed the sins. They're condemned because they didn't believe. John 3.17 makes that extremely clear. That didn't make it onto my sheet. <laughs> John 3.17 comes right after John 3.16 says, 
For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he's done a lot of really bad sins. No. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That is the entirety of the message of the Gospel of John, that salvation Eternal life, righteousness is credited to people through one condition, and that is believing in Christ. And if you don't believe, you are condemned already because you haven't believed in Jesus Christ. He repeats it several times, making sure you get the message. Salvation, eternal life, an inheritance in the kingdom, entrance into the kingdom is conditioned on believing in Jesus Christ, and if you do not believe, you will be outside the kingdom. You will be outside of the eternal state. Uh, Revelation 20, verses 11 through 14 that we don't have time to read, talks about the great white throne judgment, which is after the thousand years. Uh, Very clearly states, after the thousand years, then there is a judgment And these people who have not believed are condemned. You as a believer in Christ will not be at the great white throne judgment. That is reserved for unbelievers of all time. And they will be cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 21.8, speaking of the eternal state, says, uh, But for the cowardly, after describing this great city, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Revelation 22, 14, coming to the end of Revelation, says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may, may have the right to the tree of life. We wash our robes by believing in Christ. And then it may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. These people are known by their works because they haven't washed their robes by believing in Jesus Christ. And so therefore they are excluded from the kingdom. You, as a believer in Christ, on the other hand, are sealed for the day of redemption. Ephesians 1 uh, 13 through 14 makes very clear. Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Galatians or Ephesians 3 6 to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs there's that term or a, a very much related term you are heirs of something you're heirs of an inheritance entrance into the kingdom the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Through the gospel. What is the gospel? The good news that Jesus Christ has died for your sins when you 
believe in the gospel, you trust in that for the forgiveness of your sins, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, sealed by the Holy Spirit, guaranteed a place in this inheritance. You have a, a part in this promised future that God has in store for us. 1 Thessalonians 2.10 says, You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. There's that term again. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So this is granted to us this kingdom and glory is granted to us by believing in christ therefore we should walk worthy of what has been done for us same message to the thessalonians that paul has for the ephesians so uh what about rewards are is our inheritance, our reward, no, I would say that it's not. Our inheritance is entrance into the kingdom, but as a believer in Christ, you will either, uh, you will receive a reward for how worthy your walk has been as you are going about your daily life. Second Corinthians 5.10 says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And so uh, Romans 14.10 says much the same thing. There are a few other places in the New Testament that talk about this idea of rewards. We do have a reward, but we receive that reward before we enter into the kingdom. And like our scripture reading said in 1 Corinthians 3, carnal believers are going to make it in. Those who are not spiritual, babes in Christ, if you will. 1 Corinthians 3, very clear that they still make it in. They may not have much of a reward or any reward, quote unquote, at all, but they still will be saved, yet so as through fire, uh, Paul says there even in matthew 25 that i believe is talking about the nation of israel uh, how they live during the uh, uh, tribulation period whether or not they're going to receive a reward or enter in don't have as much time to go into it in, in as much detail as i would have liked but uh, Matthew 25, you're familiar with the, the parable or the teaching that Jesus is giving there that people are given uh, money when Christ comes again. They're given money to, to use for the Lord. Christ comes again. He rewards people. And then they enter into their rest. Same idea. Reward then enter into the kingdom. This in Matthew 25, speaking of uh, following the tribulation period. And this is another one of those outer darkness passages that can uh, 
cause people confusion. If you're inserting the church into Matthew 25, then you can have some real issues when we get to verse 30. Uh, we're familiar with the, with the one servant who was given uh, the least amount of money to use. But notice what it says of this, of this one. His response to the Lord. When he doesn't have anything to give back to the Lord, notice what uh, the Lord says to him. Verse 26 of Matthew 25. But his master answered and said to him, Uh, Let me back up. Verse 24. And the one who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, notice what he says to the Lord. Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Remember Matthew 11? Take my yoke upon you. My burden is light. It's easy. You don't have to work for it. This guy says, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. Who gave him the one talent? Is he reaping where he didn't sow? No, this guy doesn't know the Lord. That's why what's going to happen to him happens to him. Not not because he didn't turn the one into 15. It's because he doesn't know who the Lord is. Verse 28. Uh, verse 25, and I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave. That term wicked is only used to describe people who are wicked, people who are unrighteous, people who don't have uh, Christ's righteousness. So he's, recogn- he's calling this guy what he is. He's evil. Lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed, supposedly, uh, is the implication there. You think that's who I am? Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Matthew 35, not talking about the church, not talking about a believer who's disobedient. In fact, it's talking about a person who lived through the tribulation, didn't use the talents and abilities that God gave to him in the first place, didn't recognize who Jesus Christ is, and he is tossed into outer darkness. He has no inheritance in the kingdom. And all this is going, this kingdom takes place after the church age, rapture of the church, seven years of tribulation. Christ comes again at the end of the seven years, and then he has his millennial kingdom upon the earth and i apologize for going so long (laughs) ephesians chapter 5 these first five verses we are supposed to imitate god therefore don't live like unbelievers since they don't have an inheritance in god's kingdom and you will let's go to the lord